are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter 2, 1-3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, church. Welcome this morning. Hope you're having a great weekend. Um, if you're a guest with us, welcome. Uh, my name is Austin Baker. I'm the lead pastor here at Emmanuel Church. Uh, and if you are uh, around here for any given time, so if this is your first week or your 50,000th week, um, you're going to see and hopefully experience that we truly desire to operate and function uh, like a family here. Of all the metaphors used in the Bible to describe the church, you know, from the bride of Christ to the body of Christ to the flock of God to a pillar and buttress of truth, all these different metaphors that are beautiful and amazing and great and grand to communicate a variety of things. Of all the ones used, I think that we as a church gravitate more towards the metaphor of the family of God, the, the household of faith. And I think uh, we truly seek, and I believe we truly seek to embody uh, in our midst what families are intended to be. And this is uh, one of Peter's favorite metaphors as well. And we've been in the letter of 1 Peter. If you're joining us, if you're new, welcome. We're in the middle of 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter's used many familial terms already in his letter already at this point in chapter 1. He's writing to these elect exiles, to use the language of verse 2 of chapter 1, spread out throughout what is today modern-day Turkey. And he is talking to these men and women chosen by God for salvation and strangers in this world uh, using familial terms. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, just to give you some examples. Verse 2 of chapter 1, Peter mentions God is our Father. You know, so we have a shared father if we are in Christ Jesus. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he discusses the reality of being born again, born into a family, born anew into the family of God. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he calls us obedient children in relation to our holy father. And then as we talked about last week in verse 22 of chapter 1, he talks about, commands us to have a sincere brotherly love, this familial affection for one another. And now here in chapter 2, verse 2, which is in the middle of the three verses we're looking at this morning, he calls on us to be like newborn infants. Again, this familial language. Babes in Christ by way of being born again and then to begin craving the things of God. To grow up for the purpose, to grow up into salvation, verse 2 says. That although we may be in this room, we may be, some of us, like new believers, spiritual, spiritually newborns in this family of faith that we are, that God's intention is for us to mature, to grow, as it is for any family talking about their kids. They want their kids to grow into maturity, not stay newborns forever, not act like newborns forever, to grow into maturity, adolescence, to become spiritual adolescents, then become spiritual adults, then become spiritual grandfathers and grandmothers, you know, leaving behind generations of Christ followers you know, as they work their way through this life. And Peter roots the catalyst for this growth into spiritual maturity 
in our tastes, in our senses, particularly our sense of taste, in our cravings, in our desires, in our yearnings. You know, just as newborn infants first taste the milk of their mothers and desperately crave after it, so we too have tasted, if we are in Christ, the goodness of the Lord. And we now, as those born in Christ, should incessantly and desperately crave the pure spiritual milk that comes from God, as a newborn infant craves the milk of his or her mother. And the charge from Annual Church, the household of faith here at 6400 Crestwood Boulevard in Birmingham, Alabama, the charge for us this morning is we have tasted that the Lord is good. So let us, therefore, continue feasting on him. We have tasted that the Lord is good, so let us therefore continue to feast on Christ. So I want to pray for us again now as we open up God's Word. And I want us to see how Peter instructs us to crave these things, to crave after the things of God. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you make yourself available to us, that you by the Spirit have given us spiritual tastes spiritual appetites, spiritual yearnings and groanings that only you can satisfy. And you choose to satisfy us by your grace. So we praise you for that. I pray for us this morning that we would learn to incessantly crave the right things. May we not be slaves to our own desires and our bodies and our minds, but may we desire the things of Christ and go after those things wholeheartedly. Change us, lead us by the Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. So please, O oh God, convict us, change us, give us joy this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, I'm from, um, my home for me is South Mississippi, um, Hattiesburg to be exact. But for the first 14 years of my life, I grew up in East Tennessee. I was born in East Tennessee, a little town called Morristown, Tennessee, if you guys know where that is. Man, praise the Lord. Uh, about 30 miles east of Knoxville, kind of in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. And from early on in my life, uh, God has just put in me a love for the autumn season, all right, the fall season. I just love, love it. Maybe it's because I was born in September, and so like technically that's fall, even though it doesn't feel like fall. But anyway, but living in East Tennessee for those first 14 years of my life, um, there are things that I associate with the fall season, what we're about to go into here, that take me back to being as a kid. I get real nostalgic. I've talked about my nostalgia before from this pulpit. I will talk about it again. I love nostalgia, all right? I just do. I'm a sucker for it. But like when the Christmas of the air happens, when you wake up in the morning and it's just cool outside, pumpkin patches, Halloween, Thanksgiving, college football, you know, hiking through the mountains when the leaves are changing colors, like all of these things just take me back to those first 14 years of my life. And I love it. I love it. But one of the things I love the most about the fall um, are the foods of fall. Uh, I love to eat. Really bad food for me, um, but I love to eat. Uh, and I love foods that are related to the fall. Pumpkin-related foods. I love things with apples in them in the fall season. You know, apple pies, apple ciders. I love when the weather gets cold to throw on some grilled cheeses and put on some tomato soup on the oven and just, you know, cozy up, you know, in my house. And I just love these things. I just love them. Um, I cannot get enough of the food of the fall. And one food I crave more than any others in the fall season 
the one that when mornings start to get cool outside that I want more than any other food this time of the year is apple butter. Yeah, amen. Um, But not just any apple butter, all right? Not just any apple butter. But apple butter from the apple barn in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Thank you, Hunter. I see that hand. Um, You know, Morristown growing up was not too far from Sevierville and Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge. And so I remember as a kid, we'd go to the apple barn all the time and get food, get fried apple pies and apple butter. And there's nothing like, I mean, listen, I consider myself an apple butter connoisseur, um, especially this time of the year. I've tasted and seen many apple butters, and uh, there is nothing like, I'm telling you, listen, there's nothing like, and if you come to me with like all these ideas, I'm just going to laugh in your face because they're not, other apple butters pale in comparison, all right? You're like, you haven't tried this one. Yeah, I probably have, and it's not like the apple butter from the apple board, all right? But every single fall, because I have tasted the best, because I've tasted the best apple butter out there, I get cravings for apple butter from the apple barn that lead me to do some pretty ridiculous things and spend some really dumb money to get apple butter from the apple barn. Verses 1 through 3 of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter gives us the fourth and final command of this section here in his letter. So if you remember the first command, we set our hope fully on God's coming grace, verse 13, chapter 1. Second command, we seek to be holy as our God is holy, verse 15 of chapter 1. Last week, we talked about how we are commanded to earnestly love one another. It's command number three, chapter one, verse 22. And then this week, we are commanded to grow, to mature in Christ by craving and longing the things of Christ. Now, cravings are powerful things. I mean, cravings are powerful things. You know, cravings for apple butter put me in a car before driving four hours to Pigeon Forge to grab a dang jar of apple butter. It's ridiculous. You know, cravings have put many husbands in parking lots at Applebee's at 9.30 at night getting half-priced appetizers for their pregnant wives, all right? Cravings drive us to do some crazy things. And on the flip side of that, cravings also can be very destructive. You know, addictions. Think about addictions to substances. Your brain and your body are now conditioned and programmed to yearn for and crave substances that you will take great, go to great lengths and take great risks to fulfill that craving. You know, even risks that could be detrimental to the, your health, your well-being. You know, Peter here draws a connection between our new identities in Christ and our new cravings that we will have. New desires, new affections. That when we're born again, we're born again with a yearning for the sustenance that comes from God. That we're born again by God's sovereign grace which compels us to move into God's provision and sustenance for us in His Son through the Holy Spirit. We have been born, and now through God's sustaining power, we are now maturing in Christ. And these cravings and desires we now have, they lead to healthy growth and maturity as Christ followers. And verse 3 here in chapter 2 really frames up our entire sermon. And it's a clause. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, Peter's calling on us to experience Christ through one of the most pleasurable of our five senses, sense of taste. This isn't an invitation to lifeless, joyless, distant pursuit of a God who's far off, but it is an invitation, a summons 
to the deepest of pleasures and joy in Christ Jesus. We've tasted that the Lord is good in the gospel, and now Peter will teach us how to continue to crave and yearn God's goodness in our lives through the Holy Spirit. So Peter gives us two ways. This is going to really frame up our time together this morning. Two ways to experience God's goodness in these three verses. Two ways. The first is this. As believers, we continually take off sin. We continually take off sin. Verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You know, Peter is bridging the gap here between the end of chapter 1, which he preached on last week, and the beginning of chapter 2 concerning earnest, deep love for one another. And he lists here five behaviors that interrupt earnest love for God among the people of faith in the body of Christ. And he charges us to put them away. The language there is put away. It's, it's literally the language of the New Testament of taking off a garment. You take something off. Put, away, put that away from you. And to not just take off behaviors, but take off motives. So your behaviors and your motives. What behaviors and motives should we take off as God's household living together in the body of faith? Well, he lists five here. And then as I told Cherie, I was going to quote her, Cherie Hall, uh, I was discussing this text with her the other night. She said, one way to get rid of something is to do the opposite. You can't take something off without putting something on. And so we're going to look at what we're to take off, but also we're going to discuss what to put on as the body of Christ. Because if we take something off, we need to put something back on. You know, it's the same thing, kind of the same vein, Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 13, verse 12, where he says, The night is gone, the day is at hand, so cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So take off the old and put on the new, like a new shirt. And so as we move into discussing this verse, what do we put away? And at the same time, what do we put on? So there's five things here, five things. First, we put away malice. And we put on goodwill. We put away malice and we put on goodwill. You know, malice is the desire to harm another person. You know, even going as far to do a good deed, even though you know that undergirding that good deed are ill motives. You know, seeking revenge is actually a good example of malice. When you've been wronged, you want justification. You want to seek revenge on that person. You know, when I think about an act of goodwill, on the opposite of malice, an act of goodwill, my mind uh, immediately goes to Christmas, right? The Christmas text, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The angels show up, right, to all these shepherds out in this field. And they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. You know, if anyone could have had uh, come on a revenge campaign, it was Jesus, Right? If anyone could have come with malice, justified malice in a sense, it was Jesus Christ. For we have all wronged him. We've all sinned against God. And he is the only one that has the right to seek vengeance on anyone. But he chose, Jesus chose to come with goodwill towards his people, not malice. That's the picture here. Peter's saying, put off getting even if you've been wronged. And put on generous grace towards one another. Goodwill towards one another. For this is what our Savior did. Second, we put away deceit and we put on truthfulness. We put away deceit, we put on truthfulness. We, it's just simple. We don't lie to each other. Church, 
We tell each other the truth. And there are two ways we can lie to each other in the body of Christ. Two ways. First is the obvious way. We seek to cover something up or pull the wool over somebody's eyes, you know, whatever that looks like. But the second way, I believe, is actually more common in the body of Christ. You know, in our quest to be nice people, quote unquote, whatever that means, we often avoid telling somebody the truth because we feel like it's going to hurt their feelings or make things awkward or come across as superior to someone else. And so we avoid hard conversations. We avoid speaking truth into someone's life out of fear that we may upset them. And we shouldn't, listen, we shouldn't be jerks and deliberately run people over with the truth. That's not what I'm talking here. We shouldn't bash people over the heads with the scriptures. That's not the kind of truth-telling I'm talking about. But at the same time, if any of us, and myself included in that any of us, is out of step with the gospel in our lives, we need to love each other well enough to tell each other the truth in love because we care about each other. You know, it may sting, it may be hard to hear, it may make things awkward, but we need to be able to trust one another well enough that we are for one another, and by being for one another, we tell each other the truth, even if it's painful sometimes. Peter will go on later in this chapter, in chapter 2, verse 22, to specifically say that deceit, so untruthfulness, was not found in the mouth of Jesus. There was no deceit in his mouth that he was always the teller of truth. But at the same time, as we study the life of Christ, we see that he was also the embodiment of grace. And it's this marriage of truth and grace that the church is to emulate, that we seek to be honest and tell each other the truth, but at the same time, we, we soften it with grace. We don't avoid it. We're not jerks, but we soften it with grace. Uh, the truth of Christ was laced with grace and kindness. So that's the second thing. Third, we put away hypocrisy and we put on belief. We put away hypocrisy and we put on belief. This may feel like a, like a weird juxtaposition, hypocrisy and belief. But, you know, a lot of times we talk about hypocrisy as, you know, we're not practicing what we preach. And that's a part of it. But that practicing is actually rooted in unbelief. It starts with unbelief. We don't believe the gospel, and therefore our actions exhibit that. You know, hypocrisy is not the failure necessarily to practice what you preach. It's the failure to believe what you preach. We're full of unbelief, which leads to a lack of, of, of consistent action, right? I mean, Peter's saying, put off just talking about gospel truths and start believing gospel truths. And I truly, and speaking for myself, like I fail to believe the gospel all the time. You know, I fail to believe it when after sinning, I feel too unworthy to come to Christ, who's the source of grace and forgiveness. You know, I fail to believe the gospel when I, I think that people are too far spiritually gone to be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I fail to believe the gospel when I lose my temper with my children, forgetting that God has been gracious and kind and patient with me as his child. And I could go on and on. I'm just talking about me. May the Holy Spirit enable us to put off these hypocrisies of unbelief as the body of Christ and to put on true belief in the gospel, belief that impacts our actions. So that's third. Fourth, we put away envy and we put on delight. We put away envy and we put on delight. 
truly believe, I've said this before, but I, I stand by it, I truly believe it's easier to mourn with those who mourn than rejoice with those who rejoice, especially when what we're rejoicing in is something we want. With the rise of, of social media over the last 10 to 12 years, I feel like envy has like shot through the roof. And you pull up your Instagram account or Facebook account or Twitter account and you see trips that are being taken and houses that are being built and kids being born and games being attended and stuff being bought and dates being gone on. You see all these things and you're inundated with how boring your own life is and you're envious about other people's stuff and other people's experiences. You look at your house, you're like, man, my house is really junky. I wish it looked like that one. Or, man, I'm really lonely. I wish I had him or her. Envy just sprouts up. If I only had that, if I only dated him, if I only dated her, if I only had those things, if I only had that money, if I only bought that, then X, Y, and Z. But Peter says here to put away envy and jealousy. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.3 3, that for while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? You know, Joseph Epstein, he wrote a, a book called Envy. Um, he said this, he said, Envy clouds thought, clobbers generosity, precludes any hope of serenity, and ends in shriveling the heart. Shrivels up our hearts. We're unable to rejoice with those who rejoice truly in the body of Christ when we are jealous of what they have. You know, we could spend an entire sermon on envy. We don't have time. But Psalm 73, Psalm 73 is a great remedy for envy in our hearts. You know, the psalmist begins with jealousy towards the success of the wicked. You know, how the wicked prosper. And the godly just seem to be cast aside. He's throwing a pity party for his self-perceived lack of whatever in this world. But he ends with this, the end of Psalm 73. He says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Our delight for one another begins with our delight in God. Seeking him as our refuge. Him is our value giver. Not anything else we may have or not have. So let us put off envy in order to put on delight. Delight in God and delight in one another. And then fifth, put away slander and we put on praise. We put away slander and we put on praise. You know, words cut deep. I mean, some of us have been in counseling for a long time based off words that were spoken to us by someone we loved and respected. Slander is literally cutting people down with our speech. It's gossip, it's rumors, it's backbiting, it's ridicule, it's critical speech. We want to build up, church. We want to build up with our tongues, with our mouths. We desire to praise our God, but we also desire to lift up one another. You know, throughout the week, do you find yourself more critical than encouraging of those around you? I think many churches have a deficiency in verbally affirming one another in the body of Christ and being vocal towards one another in the body of Christ. You know, when someone is using their gifts to serve our church, we need to affirm them, not just take it for granted. When you see, when you see somebody standing at the door, when you see people taking care of your kids, when you see uh, communion being served, 
When you see people giving up of their time and their energy and using their gifts to build up this body, we need to verbally affirm them. Not just assume that they know we appreciate them, but verbally say thank you so much for using your gifts to serve our church. Thank you so much for taking your time and your energy to serve our body. Thank you so much for leading us in worship. Thank you so much for these things. We are, I feel like churches everywhere have a deficiency in doing these things because we assume they understand. We assume they know we appreciate them. A lot of times they don't, especially if the task is less glamorous than other ones. So we need to affirm one another. Not only do we seek to experience Christ by experiencing praise to his name here in the worship gathering, we want to experience Christ by affirming each other, building each other up in our daily lives in the body of Christ. So, Peter then makes a transition here, verses 2 and 3. He moves us from the initial experience of being born again to the continuing experience of growing in Christ, maturing in Christ. Just as tasting Christ in the gospel was the initial entrance into spiritual life, so now continuing to find nourishment in Christ is the sustaining part of our Christian lives. So we put off sin. That's the first thing we do. Second, we find our nourishment in Christ. We find our nourishment in Christ. Read with me again verses 2 and 3, 1 Peter chapter 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know, my study uh, of this text, there's a lot of like debate back and forth that I'm not going to get into too much this morning between like pastors and commentators and what Peter's talking about when he refers to pure spiritual milk. Like is he only, there's a camp that only believes he's referring to the word of God only. Like that's the only thing, crave the word of the Lord. Be in the word, feast on the word, all those things. And that's obviously a a great, great thing. Um, And there's another camp that, uh, the other camp is like, To crave pure spiritual milk is not just to crave the word. That is it, but it's more than that. It's to seek to experience the life of Christ, the sustaining life of Christ in your everyday life through all the ways that God is moving around you. And I would would probably fall into that second camp. You made a strong argument, though I changed my mind. But right now, I fall probably fall into that second camp. Yes, we should be feasting on the word regularly, coming to the Word. It's the banquet of God, like right there, just feasting on Christ through the Word, longing for the Word on a daily basis. That should be a regular rhythm of our lives. But I think God is is evident and at work in our daily lives in a variety of ways. And the milk Peter's referring to here in verse 2 is, in my opinion, anything related to the sustaining life we receive from God. Anything. You know, Peter's inviting us to feast on God wherever you see him moving, wherever. You grow in your knowledge of God through your time in the word, and then you enjoy him throughout the day. You find your spiritual nourishment in Christ throughout the day. It's impossible, though. It's impossible to truly understand what Peter's talking about here without going back to the source of what Peter's quoting here in verse 3, which is Psalm 34. So everybody take your Bible, flip it over to Psalm chapter 34. About midway through your Bible. Peter's quoting here in verse 3, Psalm 34, particularly verse 8. 
which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes his refuge in him. The psalm was written by David. As you can see at the top, just read a little conscription there at the top. Whenever David was fleeing King Saul, so Saul's trying to kill him, 1 Samuel chapter 21, David is fleeing. And through his fleeing, he ends up in Gath, which is a Philistine territory, all right? So enemy-occupied land. So David's being pursued by one enemy, and he is now surrounded by another enemy in the Philistines. So David quite literally is surrounded by enemies on every side. He has been chosen as king by God earlier in 1 Samuel. He's been anointed as king, chosen by God. Yet he has had to flee his kingdom and await God's deliverance. You know, in a sense, David was an elect exile, right? He's chosen by God, yet a stranger in the land he currently occupied. It's very fitting that Peter would choose Psalm 34 to quote here in his letter. 1 Peter. And any time the New Testament writers would quote something from the Old Testament, the the intention of that writer is that we would fix our minds, not just on that particular verse quoted, but on the entirety of the passage surrounding that verse. So, for example, Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? You hear that from the lips of Christ on the cross, and we read it in our 21st century context, and we solely take that verse and we're like, man, God must have completely forsaken Christ on the cross. He was utterly helpless, had no hope at all, all those things. And some of those things are true. But given that the writers want us to think about the entirety of the text and not just one particular verse, when the readers of the first century read this and when we read it now, we should think about the entirety of Psalm 22, which the entirety of Psalm 22 starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends trusting in the Lord to deliver him and having hope that he would be delivered by the mercy and the grace of his God. So when Jesus utters that cry, yes, he's expressing a present reality, but he's also expressing his grounded, concrete hope that he would be delivered from the cross. So here, Psalm 34, verse 8, A taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes his refuge in him. This psalm in its entirety is a plea. Yet even when surrounded by enemies on all sides, even when hopelessness and despair are nipping at our heels, even then we are summoned to deeply experience the goodness of our God, to taste and see that he is good. This invitation to taste and, and see that the Lord is good, to taste that he is good here in 1 Peter chapter 2, it, it, it's a little abstract, right? Like, how do you do that? Like, how do you taste something that's spiritual, that's invisible? Like, what does that even mean? Like, how do you even <laughs> taste a human being, right? It's resurrected, right? It's just weird. It's just weird, all right? So how do you experience Christ in that really intimate way, you know, that really experiential way when you come to him? So, two books that I've read that have really helped me understand what this means are, one's really old, from like the 1600s, by a guy named Brother Lawrence, practicing the presence of God. Brother Lawrence, he was a monk, 
1600s, wrote this little book. Actually, somebody wrote it about him, but it's a lot of quotations from him. And then The Liturgy of the Ordinary by a girl named Tish Harrison Warren. And both of them advocate, if you want those books, just come talk to me and we can figure out something to give them to you. And both of them advocate this idea of treating every moment of every day as if God were present with you, which is true. He is present with you. But it's opening your mind to the awareness of how he is working around you and that he is inviting you into partnering with him in his work in the world. And he is welcoming you into a conversation with him throughout your day. You know, Brother Lawrence, uh, whenever he was given a task in his monastery, you know, whether that be the task of washing dishes or the task of leading vespers, you know, whatever the case may be, he would be constantly in talk with the Lord, just thinking about the Lord, just disciplining himself to to approach the Lord, even as he's doing these menial tasks, as if Christ was also actively engaged in the task with him, which he was. Brother Lawrence defied, you know, we have this sacred secular divide. We're like, these things are holy and these things are not holy. And these, these things are sacred and these things are secular. This, this dichotomy, but Brother Lawrence and Tish Harrison Warren say, no, every moment is a sacred moment. Every single one. There is no sacred secular divide. God is at work all around you, all the time. Every moment is sacred. And Brother Lawrence says this. He says, We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it's performed. Then Warren, writing in 2016, kind of continues this thought. She picks up this message of Brother Lawrence, brings it in our modern day, and she talks about these daily tasks that she goes about, these ordinary tasks every day that remind her of how God is working, remind her of his goodness to her in this created order. And in chapter 2, she talks about the discipline of making her bed. That sounds so lame, but like, it's beautiful. I'm going to tell you what she talks about. I'm going to tell you. But she says that she used to wake up every morning. Maybe this is you. She would wake up every morning, and the first thing she did is what? What do you do the first thing in the morning? Now, this day and age, when you wake up? Check your phone, right? You reach for your phone. It's right there beside your bed. You reach for your phone. And instead of sitting in the stillness with the Lord, the first thing in the morning, she is distracting herself with technology, things going on in the world. And she would just get up, leave her bed unmade, and go about her day. But she realized what she was doing, that this was becoming a habit in her life. So she decided to implant in her life a new discipline. And it wasn't anything grand or great, but she would literally wake up, and the first thing she would do is she would make her bed. And she would sit down next to her bed, and she would sit and wait for the Lord. And while she was waiting for the Lord, she had this realization that in the making of her bed, something so ordinary and mundane and routine, something that happens on a daily basis, but in the making of her bed, Starting off her day, she was joining with the Lord and bringing order out of chaos. That she was taking part in the work of God at the very start of her day. She had that awareness to begin having a conversation with the Lord and realizing all these other ordinary, daily, mundane tasks that reminded her of the goodness of the Lord. And she was partnering with him 
and to work in the world. Now, Warren says this. There's a quote. I have it on the screen for you. She says, if Christ was a carpenter, all of us who are in Christ find our work is sanctified and made holy. If Christ spent time in obscurity, then there is infinite worth found in obscurity. If Christ spent most of his life in quotidian ways, then all of life is brought under his lordship. There is no task too small or too routine to reflect God's glory and worth. A part of tasting the Lord is good, a part of craving the things of the Lord is being aware and participating in ways he's working in the world. Not just great ways, but menial, ordinary, mundane ways. You know, the great stories of saints throughout history that we read about or hear about, we rejoice in the Adoniram Judsons of the world and the Jim Elliots of the world and the Mother Teresas of the world and the Lottie Moons of the world. All these great saints of old, those stories are worth celebrating and rejoicing in and reading about and learning from, praising God for those men and women. <clears throat> but the truth of the gospel has been primarily believed and preserved by the other 99.9% of believers nobody knows about. The believers that woke up at 6 o'clock every single morning and began changing dirty diapers. The believers that started preparing breakfast and sending their kids to school. The believers that taught their kids homeschool, that discipled their children in their homes, that were faithful to that task. The gospel has been believed and passed down through men and women not preoccupied with doing great things for God, but completely consumed with being faithful in the ordinary things. Craving to partake in the work of God on a daily basis that he is doing in them and through them, even if it impacts only three or four people. The kingdom has advanced through men and women who have tasted that the Lord is good and have been possessed by deep yearnings for God's glory and power to be seen in their daily lives. You may feel like you're not making a difference at all but your faithfulness to the gospel in the midst of carrying out ordinary things is extremely significant. Psalm 34 is an invitation not just to experience the goodness of God individually, but to experience it together as a body. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And then in an invitation, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. If throughout each day as we experience the goodness of our God, as we crave to see his goodness manifested in our lives, we invite each other to come along and experience that with us. It's a collective invitation because as we have talked about before, our joy, church, our joy is not complete until our joy is shared. Let me pray for us. There are ways God is demonstrating his goodness to us on a daily basis that produce in us greater cravings and yearnings for him. Be aware 
open your eyes. Even in the smallest, mundane things, God is reminding you of his goodness. So let's pray together. Father, I praise you for your goodness to me. I praise you for your goodness to my family, for your goodness to this church. We have tasted that you are good. And there's so much more of Christ to feast on. So I pray, oh God, I pray that you put in us insatiable spiritual appetites for you. May we not seek to be satisfied or have our appetites filled up in anything other than you. For it's in you, Christ, that we take our refuge. When our enemies surround us in this world, when hopelessness abounds, it is in you that we take our refuge. Because we've tasted and seen that you are good. Open our eyes to see all the ways you have loved us, all the ways you have provided for us, all the ways you are moving now among us. And put in us deep, deep, deep longings for your glory, for your kingdom in this body to be manifested, but also in this world. We love you, Lord. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.